Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I went totally the wrong way because I saw it as easy money and there was nothing easy about it. And there is way nothing easy about it now. But yeah, going to jail was part of the job. That is Nelson Aguilar. As a kid, he was smuggled out of Fidel Castro's Cuba and into Miami, where he fell in with the wrong crowd and became a notorious cocaine dealer. His life, half of which was spent in jail, is a metaphor for the many things that have gone wrong between Havana and Washington. Enjoy this episode from our archive. Stay with us. Sunday, November 10th at the National in downtown Richmond, we take a crack at making public media history. Full Disclosure presents Not a Surf, one of my favorite bands, interviewed on their 25-year journey of a big break to getting dumped by their record label to reuniting after the heartbreak and winning back their name through hustle and connecting with new fans. We have them on stage for Full Disclosure, then they play a full concert, and it will all be recorded for a documentary pilot. Avoid most fees by getting your tickets in advance at the Nationals' box office. Sunday, November 10th at the National in downtown Richmond. Full Disclosure is evening with Not a Surf. Please join us. Nelson Aguilar joins us from NPR member station WLRN in Miami. Thank you for coming in, Nelson. How you doing, Robin? Thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, Nelson, this is a non-traditional way of kind of telling the, the story of Cuba and the U.S., but I was struck in... Um, when I talk to you about uh, you know this this idea of the miseducation of a kid who fled communism in Cuba, I mean certainly your aunt plucked you out of Havana under false pretenses to come to a better life in the United States. Could you could you tell us kind of what what her her reasoning was? Well, my aunt was uh, well, she still is because uh, she still lives with me. She's ninety two years old, but anyway, she was abdomen that I not grow up without freedom, that I, that I had to, she, she knew where the things were headed and, uh, she didn't want that life for me. Whether she made the right decision or not, that's, you know, that's life, life will bear that out. What, what were your mom and dad doing during the revolution? I mean, let's timestamp this 1959. You were born in 62? 62. What kind of family did you come from? Okay. My dad, my dad was like, uh, middle-class family. He was a Knight of Columbus. He went to college and he was a CPA. His his dad was a CPA. They were from Camagüey, Cuba. Actually, the city of Camagüey, which makes it a, like a bigger town. And my, my, my mom came from Oriente. That's, you know, another province in Cuba. And they all lived in Florida, Camagüey. So, we just came from Florida to Florida anyway. <laughs> right. But um, she was from a decent family. They were they owned a few stores, like shoe stores and a clothing store. So you were an upper, upper middle class family. Well, that's all relative, but we were okay. I mean, they were okay. I was a little, you know, I was a baby. But they were professionals. My dad was a professional. My mom was a teacher. So, you know, yeah, they were professionals. But your dad, I mean, you told me was a dyed-in-the-wool uh Castro backer and a communist to the point that he considered sending you to Russia for kindergarten. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell exactly. That's what started the whole problem. <laughs> so he showed up. Uh, by this time, my mom and my dad were divorced. So I was staying with my auntie and he shows up and he tells my auntie, listen, you better not get used to him because as soon as he gets old enough, he's off to Russia to learn how to be a real good communist. And he shouldn't have said that. That was what, you know, shot my auntie over the edge. How old were you? Three, four, maybe five, something like that. 1965, roughly? Yeah. I, yeah. Well, we, we came in 69. So what did she do to bring you to Miami? Tell us. Well, so she was from this little country place called Florida. And she went over to Havana. And imagine back then, my auntie is a lady that people that know her respect her integrity. So this was like a big issue to her. So she goes up to Havana and she tells him that she had an illegitimate son out of wedlock and that she would like to... Uh, so she named him, bottom line, she named me Nectar Casio. <laughs> she doomed me from the beginning. But anyway, uh, she named me Nectar Casio and she got me a, she got me a birth certificate. And then when she went back to her little town, because there's always humanness in everything, in the little town, they have the neighborhood committee. That's like one rat is the one that tells everything that's going on, and then all the other rats tell him and whatever. It's a neighborhood committee. 
but it's it's very politically bent a, a towards ideology. But she, the human beings are human beings. So she went back to her little town, and those people knew. But she challenged them. She said, listen, you know, I'm going to take him, and if you want to tell on me, tell on me. And since it was a country town, they didn't tell on her. She got away with it. So she essentially risked her life to bring you to Miami? Well, for sure, for sure. As a matter of fact, she was she didn't have enough trouble bringing me, right? So it's not like a big deal that you're stealing a big communist son. Now she has my uncle. My uncle was a communist too. He was a pilot. But she wanted him coming over here. So she got all his papers, and we had made this luggage, and she put a like a false bottom on the luggage, and we got caught, my grandmother, her, and me at the airport. And they send us off to a little detention place, and thank God we got away. We landed in Miami. But, you know. Do you remember You remember those first years in Miami? I understand you, you lived in Little Havana off of Southwest 5th. Yeah, 5th and 5th, Southwest 5th and 5th. And you told me that in your, you were an upstanding kid. I mean, your elementary, in your elementary school, uh, you wrote an essay for Black History Month that won you a trophy. It's the only trophy I've ever won in my life. I got another one for volleyball, but I didn't earn it. <laughs> they just gave it to me. But this one I got, I, I still cherish it. So, t- you know, time stamp this. This is roughly 1969, going on to the, uh, you know, uh, early well, no, 70s. Well, no, no, no. This is like 72, 73. So this is a time, though, Miami, uh, for those who don't understand, is an enormous crucible. You have these uh, veterans f- that were going to, you know, that, that invaded Cuba uh, a couple years after Castro came to power under the auspices of the CIA, the Bay of Pigs veterans. Uh, they were captured. A lot of them were humiliated. They were traded for medical supplies and... Um, and baby food. That's what Castro And baby food. Say. And then end up back in Miami really ticked off with a lot of CIA training under their belts. And these guys, by the time Nixon is in office, they're really raring for a rematch. Uh, and so this this huge hotbed of of activism, a lot of bombs going off in Miami in the early 70s. Uh, anybody who was perceived to be pro-Castro or pro-normalization, I mean, this was, you know, as you told me, this was, uh, this was war to them. And so civil rights and <laughs> rule of law were really suspended uh, in the no man's land that was Miami. God forbid we're going to be facing the same thing in the future here if the events of the of the day keep happening here. So, yeah. So it, it's, it's a hot issue because, to be fair, and I have to be honest to myself and to, to the people that I, that, that I call home here with, it was, it was war. Those people that were here in the late 60s and, and all the way to the early 70s, those people felt that their country had been ripped from their hands. And into the, you know, whether it was right or wrong, is, that's not my call to make. But it was war. Let me understand this, though. You did kind of adapt to life here. You you were a uh, uh, Miami Herald uh, newspaper salesman uh, you know, into middle school. When did you effectively go off the rails or when were you influenced? Uh, Again, to- my auntie with the good intentions. That, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is like no excuse for it, but this is what happened. So I'm, the, I'm president of Ada Merritt Junior High. I'm, you know... Life is good. You know what I mean? I'm just the perfect kid. I, was, I think I was a Cub Scout. I wasn't a Boy Scout. But anyway, everything was great. So my auntie figures that if we move to the area where they have Kinlock Park, that was like a better area because actually 5th and 5th was Little Havana, and it was like where the new immigrants had gotten in. It was a little bit more poor. But what happened was I was doing just fine in that environment. I mean, you know, I loved it and I was thriving. But with her good intentions, she moved me over to Kinlock Park. And then I didn't know anybody. And then I got the job in the Miami Herald. And then I learned how to make money. And then I lost interest in school. And then I got caught up in in the 70s. And just for the... I never told you this, Robin, but just there's two more years that I gained because I'm kind of young. But what happened when I was 14, I was looking through the papers that my auntie had, and I found the birth certificate that said that I was 16, that my name was Nectar Casio. So I went and I got a driver's license. So I was driving since I was 14. You were driving when you were 14, but when did you realize that, look, there was there was money to be made elsewhere. There was a certain opportunity. I mean, we talk about the people who are twice your age or three times your age who've already sublimated their skill set. They knew hundreds of miles of Florida and Caribbean coastline and the fact that they could move 
huge amounts of marijuana. When did when were you kind of tipped off and mentored to this being an opportunity that that would be better than staying in school and drinking milk and getting straight A's? Well, yeah, that was a big me. I just full disclosure, that's the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. I mean, I wish I would have stayed the president of Ada Merritt and the nice kid. I wouldn't have had as much trouble as I had all my life and lost as much time. So I want to make that clear. But if you if you if you lived in the seventies here in Miami, you selling drugs was like 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 the Italian kid in or the Jewish kid in New York running numbers. Everybody knew, you know, like like people went to the you know to the butcher and the, he took numbers maybe in in somewhere in New Jersey or New York. Well, in Miami, people sold marijuana and bought marijuana. Regular normal people. I mean, for real. And if, if, ask anybody that was around at the time and wants to say the truth. So it was a big culture. It was like it was like prohibition was hmm. that it was against the law. But here, all these immigrants just got here, and now they're driving around in new Impalas and new Cadillacs, and they're buying houses. So everybody wanted a piece of it. And it wasn't like they gave you a thousand years. If you got caught, you got caught with a hundred thousand pounds, and you might have done five years. And out of the five, you went to the feds, and you did a year and a half, and you were home, and you probably had money. So what was the downside? Except if you want to call it morally, but you know what? Fifty percent of the people in the United States probably smoke. So the moral is right in the middle right now. Full disclosure: We're talking to Nelson Aguilar about the miseducation of Nelson Aguilar. He's fifty-two right now, and he was smuggled out of Cuba as a small kid uh, for his aunt to bring him to Miami so he could escape communism. And he encountered uh, a very bizarre uh, and illustrious and vivid life there, um, where he spent half of his life in prison uh, thanks to cocaine-related charges. And he's now out and he's reflecting on that time. You know, I'm curious uh, when, when you told me uh, that you got a, you first got a taste of money, you know, even though your aunt wanted to move you to a better neighborhood, she was a cleaning lady. She worked really hard. You hardly saw her. But that left a void for people to influence you. There was your cousin Jesus, who was uh, robbing cafeterias at night. Yeah, but the the irony of that is, his, and he, now he proved it. Jesus is like a thousand times smarter than me, and Jesus could have been the, one of the best architects in the world. And why I say he proved it? Look, he went to jail, did twenty seven years in jail for first degree murder. He got out. He joined the union. He fixes elevators. He's probably the the most talented elevator fixer. And not that I say, go research him. The guy's a brain. But at this particular time, he ran into a bad girlfriend. They started doing coke. They started robbing these little cafeterias for, for petty stuff. And doing the little coke, they used to call them spoons. They were like $50 pieces and $25 pieces. You told me Jesus turned you on to cocaine. I think you were driving and he put some on a knife. The first time I ever got high, it was like the craziest thing in the world. So here I am. I pretty much was like a good salesman for the Miami Herald. I made good money. I was following, like I told you, the worst thing that could ever happen was that I went the way I went. So I get in the car with him and he turns around with this knife and he puts it in my nose. And I didn't really know what the hell he was doing. And he said, sniff, sniff. And there you go. I sniffed. I was about 15 or 16. And then went downhill. What was that like, that first sniff? It was empowering. Can you compare it to anything? What kind of euphoria? I mean, you you know, you were it dared was, to it, do it's, this. It's a false high. But at the beginning, like most times back then, the people would stay all night fixing the world. And then in the morning, nobody get up and go to work. You know, it, it, but it, it's empowering. It's it's a euphoria, like you said. But it's it it's a dirty thing, actually. I mean, you know, we're not here to talk about that. But a couple of stars crossed in the mid seventies. We saw that the Bahamian government banned Cuban fishermen from its waters. Uh, well, that's what really turned the problem on. Well, let me explain. They they were there was the spiny lobster that they claim was being overfished, even though the Bahamian government was corrupt and was trying to protect other dopers effectively. But what this did was put a lot of Cuban fishermen and people with boats out of business. 
And they were suddenly very available to move tons of bales of whatever. Used to come um, in right through the Miami River. That came right through the Miami River. And that's where you have the era of, of square groupers with these big burlap bales of marijuana. Well, yeah, in the Keys and in, in, in the Everglades and all kind. I mean, everywhere. Perry. Can you imagine Perry, Florida? <laughs> Hot smuggling area. And you guys and a bunch of your, your, your gangs kind of in the, in the surrounding areas of Little Havana – uh, and, and Hialeah were looking up to these guys who were basic car dealers and, um, you know, two-bit silk shirt guys who suddenly were some of the wealthiest people in Miami. You're talking about Carlene. <laughs> yeah, it's a Carlene Quesada, for example. He was a guy who was putting on, no, he was putting on vinyl tops uh, on a, I believe it was a Chevrolet dealership. Next thing you know, he's one of the biggest Coke dealers in Miami. I mean, how how did that you were talking about, you know, you as a guy who worked at the newspaper, who knew what it was to have to get your hands dirty for a living, looking at your aunt, uh, looking at uh, the various blue collar people around you. Did you suddenly realize there was just a faster way to riches? Yes, but I, I really want most people and whoever doesn't believe me, that's fine. But most people didn't see it as like robbing from the church. They weren't heinous crimes that they turned out to be later on as it got branded such a heinous way. And as the violence came into it and and all of the bad things that turned out from it, from the government and from the dopers, but it just turned into a really ugly thing. At this time, it wasn't like that. It was like fantasy. It was like everybody won the lotto. You lived in the neighborhood. All of a sudden, Carlene came in with 100,000 pounds of weed. They asked you to be the chauffeur. Your wife was, you know, <laughs> wiping the floor, you know, with the, with the broom. And you made 50 grand in 1978 with double-digit inflation. So it wasn't, you know, the people weren't against it as they are now or as it got at the height. That's important for somebody to to understand. And there was there was an era where it was gentlemanly, and there were you know these these swashbuckling smugglers. But with the margins that you're talking about, it certainly quickly became violent, especially when the Colombians would come back down to Miami in the late '70s, as you know, with the Dadeland massacre. Well, you got you had two big problems, the two explosions, the Marielitos that came from jail. So here you are, everybody's talking about the Marilitos, but you figure it out. You get 100,000 Americans from the worst penitentiaries or in, 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 in the United States and you drop them on Ontario. What do you think the Ontarians gonna think about the, the, the Americans? We're gonna get to that in the next block, but I wanna maybe just kind of before we get into that, talk about how the 70s ended. You uh, find yourself in jail in the late 70s, and there is this idea that you have to kind of trade freedom for this access to ridiculous riches. That kind of just came with the job description. Yeah, it was it was fantasy. It was and and you and you know and people might talk about it, but listen, if you see some some of the people dressed, you'd understand that it was a different mindset. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's even worse now with the kids. But yes, you know, it was, I, I was, I went totally the wrong way because I saw it as easy money and there was nothing easy about it. And there is way nothing easy about it now. And, but yeah, we, so going to jail was part of the job. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. This episode is, let's call it the miseducation of Nelson Aguilar a Cuban immigrant turned cocaine dealer who's now reflecting on his 52-year life, half of which was spent in jail at a time when uh, Cuban-American relations are about to normalize. Stay with us. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Sunday, November 10th at the National in downtown Richmond. Full Disclosure presents the band Not A Surf, one of my very favorites on the luck and grit and heartbreak and comebacks of 25 years in the music biz. I will interview the band, then they perform a full concert, and all of it is going to be taped for a documentary pilot. I mean, it being November, your ticket is pretty much getting you a turducken of content. Avoid most fees by getting your ticket in advance at the Nationals box office. Sunday, November 10th, Full Disclosure presents Not A Surf, right here in Richmond at the National. Join us. Full Disclosure, we're talking to Nelson Aguilar. Uh, Let's put him in Miami in the late 1970s. Uh, Nelson, you are a kid who had discovered not just marijuana, but the the lavish cocaine life. And let's talk about the 
the Mutiny Hotel and Club, uh, which actually brought you and I together in this book that I'm reporting on the hotel and club that loosely inspired Scarface. Uh, you know, it was one thing to see wealthy guys uh, driving uh, great cars. It was another thing to put them in an environment where they got the, the most beautiful women. They consumed the best lobster thermidor. Uh, there's this tale of Beto and Tito and how they took you to this posh members-only club in Tony Coconut Grove. Tell us about that time. Well, uh, I had I had gotten what we call a mandarina. So for the first time, I was about 16 years old, and I was making money. And I was making a lot of money because back then you used to, like, buy a kilo and put a kilo on it and sell it just so you'd what, get a kilo What, put a, a kilo of baby laxative or something? Yeah, yeah, mannitol. Back then they used mannitol and all that kind of stuff. But so you made money, and so you're wait, 16— Wait, wait, hold up. Time out. Let's, 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 you know, full disclosure. Let's unpack that, literally. A kilo, you cut it with a kilo of baby laxative or whatever, another powdered product. How much would you buy at wholesale? How much would it ultimately sell Well, on see, the back then, it? back then it was expensive because they hadn't started bringing it in. They were still bringing in the weed, so it wasn't— it cheap yet so a kilo was like 50 grand and it was really hard to get really really hard to get so you had in Miami a few guys like Carlos that that got him and then I met Pepe Pepe was a guy that he was in the brigade and my friend Larry 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 had a father who was the president of the brigade so he was friends with Pepe somehow Pepe got into our life but Pepe had gone crazy so his dream was he used to dress in green like if he was in the army and, and and he had us and teach us to be in the army and give us cocaine so we'd go out and run around and the guy was crazy. But anyway, so you, you, you had money at that time. And Beto and Tito took me to this place called the Muni. There was nothing like the Muni. The Muni was it. If you didn't go to the Muni in the late 70s, well, from the beginning, in Miami, it's like if you didn't go... I don't know. There's nothing to compare, but it was it was hot, you know. And what kind it, of money? What kind of money did you have suddenly? So fifty thousand dollars. Well, say a you kilo. bought a key, for instance. You bought a key, so you paid fifty thousand for the key. So you paid ten dollars for the manitol. You put it together, and now you sold both keys for fifty apiece. So you made fifty grand, and you're sex, 16, 17 years old. That was pretty good stuff. It just didn't last, and it didn't end up well. It was like, really rare for you to encounter by 1977 or 78 a, a something like a 50, you know, a kilo of cocaine. It was super rare. Of course. It came in quantities like 100 kilos was a big load. You know, 500 kilos was who knows who was doing that. Now it's 40,000 kilos and, and it doesn't matter, you know. So you suddenly have, you suddenly have a, a, a good chunk of, of uh, pocket change. And you're going into this exclusive club where, you know, to illustrate, their dopers or, or, or Arab sheikhs would walk in and fill up a hot tub full of uh, Dom Perignon at $110 a bottle. Uh, money was no item. And as you explained, you know, this is the late 70s, early 80s. And in they Miami. had Arab sheikhs because they had the embargo, so they had all the money. And the Venezuelans, the Venezuelans who were coming into Miami were known as the Dame Dos, right? Because they would come in and ask for two of everything. Uh, yeah, it's they were so stealing cheap. the petroleum money from Venezuela and they were bringing it to the United States. But yeah, they, they, they were instrumental in creating brick all the time. So you suddenly had a ton of money and we're going to the Mutiny Club. What was this time you illustrated for me? You know, you and I uh, were driving in your, your convertible and you're like, you see those signs under the overpass? Like, you know, we were so high one night. We were just shooting up these signs. Uh, what the hell kind of town was this where people could, with impunity, just sell tons of this stuff, snort tons of this stuff? And increasingly, you know, we knew it was getting violent, too. It was starting there because what I told you, it started really getting, it was starting there, but what, it got violent when you, you had two migrations that were impactful. You had 25,000 hardcore criminals landing in Miami in a few months. In 1980. Yeah. And then you had the Colombians sending their their worst over here because back then if you if you were over there and you had money you didn't have to come over here so if you came over here it was you were working for somebody that was over there so you had these really really bad colombians coming over too but the cubans were nothing to play with either and everybody was bad as a matter of fact because the cocaine created such everybody was living in a fiction and all of those things clashed and you saw what happened there was the dadeland what's called the dadeland massacre the biggest mall in in miami at the time 
uh, south of Miami where uh, two Colombian gunmen show up um, right in the middle of the day and shoot up a liquor store where another kingpin was uh, buying a bottle of Chivas or something. And that effectively put the city on notice that this was getting really violent. You had shootouts on the turnpike. You fast forward about uh, a half a year later and Castro, Fidel Castro, to bring it back to Cuba, he says, I'm flushing my toilets out onto America. He uh, really made Jimmy Carter's life miserable. But that's not fair. But that's not fair because Jimmy Carter, and I don't care what anybody says, was a good, righteous man. And he saw a country in need and he opened the doors. And then Castro made a fool out of him because if Castro would have realized, when Castro found out, oh, I'm losing everybody, you know, the open door, I'm going to stay with nobody. Then Castro, being the smart guy that he is, he went to the prisons and unloaded in the in the insane asylums. And he knew the result that that was going to have in Miami and the havoc that it was going to create. So he pretty much damned Carter, you know what I mean? But Carter was a good human being. Okay, many would say he damned Miami. If you see Miami by 1981 becoming the murder capital of the United States, you were in prison by 1980, correct? Yes, sir. And you met a lot of these Marielitos. You know, you want to take Tony Montana from Scarface. He is the... You know, the, the, the screenplay Marielle refugee, uh, criminal flushed from Cuba, ends up in Miami, gets processed under an overpass, and within a few months finds cocaine riches and is shooting up Miami and he's a hired hand. What kinds of people did you meet on the inside, the criminals? I met all kinds of interesting people, to tell you the truth. But most, most of them are mediocre. And then you got the ones that are really intelligent. You have some that are good people. And you have some that are psychos, you know what I mean? It's all kinds. It's gotten worse now because now you have the gangs. And even, you wouldn't believe this, Robin, but the Mexicans got gangs, the Cubans got gangs, the Americans got gangs, the blacks got gangs, everybody's got gangs. But here's the deal. By 1980, you were part of a bona fide, uh, uh, you know, charismatic drug smuggling gang in Miami, the Willie and Sal crew. They raced boats. They Well, they no, played. no, 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 no. Let me clarify that. Let me clarify that. I was I was like a Mino. When you compare somebody like to Willie and Sal, like Scarface is mi- minuscule compared to Willie and Sal. So, you know, they were like the epitome of what we all would want to be in our own twisted world. Tell us about them. As we talk about Marielle, tell us about Willie and Sal, because you had that first generation of smugglers. We talked about the CIA trained people who came here. They were not getting a rematch under Jimmy Carter. They turned their skill set, their master navigational skills into drug smuggling. Uh, But then when they turn on each other and there's a lot, there's a great informant culture and people snitching on each other. These two charismatic guys from Miami Senior High who were sent here as youngsters from Cuba, just like you were, they become, you know, they they become the ones who pounce on that opportunity. And in the end, they have something like a $2 billion syndicate. Um, What was that like to, to look at these guys who were your contemporaries who suddenly were the bomb? It was it was amazing. I mean, I I've always looked up to, and I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with it, with the wrong people, but I've always looked up to Willie and Sal. I think that they were the epitome of smugglers, and you know what? They didn't. I mean, they, they were very nonviolent. I don't care what anybody says and how things turned out. They were very very. Non, they were they took the high ground. If you owed them a hundred kilos and you didn't pay them, it was your loss because you were like put away. You never could do business with them again. And that was a bigger loss than making the hundred keys. Anyway. So they were they opportunistically enlisted a lot of these Marielle guys who who came in here, who washed up by the tens of thousands uh, on boats and were processed in Miami. Um, this is kind of, you know, I, I'd like to portray this as the mentorship of the, the, the CIA trained guys, training the young guys who were sent by their parents and aunts and various people like you in the 60s. And then you guys suddenly, in a dystopian way, had to mentor uh, these really poor refugees who showed up. I've spoken to m- members at the mutiny who said, I would remember these guys would walk in, they'd get smuggled into the, the exclusive hotel and club with their jeans rolled up at the bottom because they were donated from the Little Havana Charity Center. But within six months, they had their own table at the mutiny. They One bought a yellow Lamborghini. Go I mean, is that, does, that, that kind of blows the mind that you can go from rags to riches in six months. I mean, you never saw that kind of uh, advancement happen on the Lower it East happened Side. all the time in Miami, all the time. But I would say if you if you look at Boardwalk Empire, it pretty much happened in that time too, you know. 
it, it just it was a boom. It was a bonanza. Everybody was in on it. The banks were like in on it big time. I mean, you know, how how can you feed all that money through the system without counting on City Boot on Citigroup? That's true. Now you talk about you talk about the uh, peculiar economy. Um, during the time of Marielle. This should be a time of abject misery in Miami. You talk about 1980, 1981, race riots. The county morgue is so overrun that it has to lease refrigerated trucks from the Burger King Corporation. Uh, cocaine is everywhere. Uh, there are shootouts on the turnpike. And yet, as you illustrate, the economy is booming. At the Federal Reserve Bank of Miami has a bigger surplus than all the other regional feds combined. Um, you can argue that... Um, you know, transitively, this disconnect from Cuba and this antagonism over several decades has really benefited the, the economy of Miami. Of course. I mean, the, the, the Miami, listen, I don't care what anybody says. Miami would not have been what it is today where they just rated it. It's one of the top 10 cities in the world. Billionaires come over here. They're not only coming over here, they're coming here to live. You understand? And Miami would have never, ever been that in the time frame that it did it in without the drug business being a huge part of fueling the the economy. And, you know, if anybody thinks I'm wrong, well, I'm sorry, and I apologize tremendously. And by extension, Nelson, I mean, the drug business would not have been possible, you're saying. It was really suborned by the United States government. After all, the CIA trained these people to go in and take out Castro. It didn't happen the second time around. Carter was considering normalizing relations with Cuba uh, as early as 1976, but I understand it didn't happen because uh, Cuba was was meddling in, with Angola and the Cold War was, was ramping up. Uh, could you imagine how different history would be if... Uh, Cuba and the United States were again talking to each other in the early 70s? You know, my biggest dream, and maybe people will hate me for it, but I wish I would have been like the Puerto Ricans and I would have been a state of the United States because the best thing that could have happened to any human being in the world is just to be born in the United States. So, you know what I mean? It's It would have been great. And, and, and that's where the big problem is right now that so many people on so many sides have so many grievances that nobody's putting ahead the country. And there's patriots, and they still they can't see that our country's been suffering for 56 years and nothing's worked. So if this works or not, it might not work. It might be the worst thing in the world, but Jesus Christ, I would love to be able to go back to my country and be free where men can be free. You know, there was a Cuban fighting with George Washington, and that's a provable fact. We know about freedom. We just lost it for a while. You know, Nelson, in your restaurant, I remember when I was sitting with you, you have a restaurant in, in uh, Miami Beach, and there's a a, a, a painting by uh, uh, Luis Posada Carriles, who uh, in Cuban-American terms in Miami, he's looked at as a patriot. Others, uh, externally, people in Havana would call him a terrorist. He was linked to the blowing up of a Cuban jetliner uh, well, in the Well, you know, Monkey Morales might have had something to do with that, or Castro might have, sure. have something but to do with that. But my point is, my point is there is this duality, kind of, that there's these people, you know... Uh, People who are celebrated in the streets of Miami, where certainly there's been a hell no approach to any sort of normalization uh, for decades. You you tell me, and everybody's realizing that generationally, their grandkids just aren't as passionate about this as they are. They're kind of like, you know. They've been assimilated by the American dream. Right. America's been great to the Cubans. I mean, you know, even the ones they get, you talk about the other day, there's some that get here now. And six months later, they're robbing from Medicare hundreds of millions of dollars. Nothing changed. So, and there's some that get here and work their asses off and make it legitimately. But America's been very good to to the Cuban people. We're talking with Nelson Aguilar, who was taken out of Cuba as a small boy, uh, so his aunt could get him out of the clutches of communism. He grew up in Miami, uh, was very much miseducated in Miami, took a couple of wrong turns. Now he looks back on his life of 52 years. He spent, what, 23 years in prison? Yeah. Stop counting. I don't even know. <laughs> and now suddenly the United States and Cuba are on the brink of normalization. And we wanted to kind of look at lessons learned and actually spin this forward to a certain extent. Is there a part of you now as a really as a dyed in the wool capitalist and and frankly you are a capitalist in the, in the late 70s 100% <laughs> who's looking at this as an opportunity now uh what what is cuba going to be really eager to get its mitts on well look personally 
for me to be thinking about making and coming from an ex-drope dealer, it sounds crazy. But personally, for me, thinking about making money off the pain and suffering of the Cuban people, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather rob a bank. And I'm not going to do that either because, thanks God, I got a little restaurant and I make a couple of dollars and live well. But, you know, there has to be. The United States and Cuba have historically been friends. I don't know if, if you heard me. A guy was with George Washington fighting in the revolution for America to be free. He was a Cuban. I think he's buried in Mount Vernon somewhere. You know, pre-revolutionary Cuba, pre-1959, it was a playground for millionaires. There's that song, I'll See You in CUBA. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, they were in the Havanas. They were in the casinos of Havana. You could get anything. You could watch any kind of show. Uh, that you know, it was a it was a luxury destination. Now suddenly, you're going to have to reconcile that. Something like Las Vegas is now, right? <laughs> right. Um, suddenly, everybody is talking about. Well, how do you you know? Suppose the morning after resumption. Okay, you have an embassy. You have commercial ties. Uh, what next? I mean, these obviously you, you see the cars in Havana. They need parts. They need supplies. Uh, there's no shortage of of things that uh, not in terms of taking advantage of people, but in terms of filling their needs that uh, American companies and small businesses are going to have to provide. You know what I really think, Robin, and I'm going to, you know, I might get crucified for saying this, but this is what I really think. The young guys, they're like 50 years old, that grew up under that system and know that it doesn't work, but they don't want to lose power. If those young guys and if the freedom lovers in the country in Cuba and here and the Americans that mean well and Barack Obama is giving it a shot and I'm sorry, Miami, but, you know, something's got to be ha- has to be done. And maybe this will give us freedom, maybe not the way that we think about it in the exile, but if it makes our people free, it's great. If it creates a good economy for South Florida and for Cuba and there's freedom in Cuba, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Historically, Cubans, do you know that Ricky Ricardo, he invented the sitcom, you know, when everybody loved Lucy, he was going out with Lucy and he was pre-Castro Cuban and he lived here. He chose to live here. He liked it here. So what I'm saying is it's normal for Cuba and the United States to be friends. This whole 60-year thing is, 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 is a crazy thing that's happened. And, and if we keep pointing fingers at each other and not giving freedom a chance, then, you know, we're still going to be backward like we are now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. Full disclosure, we're talking with Nelson Aguilar and the miseducation of Nelson Aguilar over the near six-decade freeze in relations between the United States and Cuba. Nelson, looking back, um, you know, I wonder how different things would have been for you personally if uh, a couple of different things happened. Suppose your aunt was blocked at the airport. Suppose you were remanded back to your father's house in Havana. You know, much as we talk about the Elian Gonzalez saga in the year 2000 and the boy who ended up here uh, who floated to Miami, the community there did not want to give him up. Uh, he did get to go back to Cuba. What would happen if you, what do you think would happen if you grew up under your father's wing? You know what? You might not like this answer, but I think I was better off doing 23 years in prison in the United States than having been, it, it, to grow up in Cuba is like, it's the most terrible thing that could happen to a human being. I mean, North Korea is the same way, and there's a whole bunch of other places, but I wouldn't even want to think about that, Robin. You spent 23 years on the inside. I understand you had a portion of your gut removed in prison. You lost a lot of time with your with your child. Um, right now, you, you have a perspective in that you're out there. You can enjoy things. Uh, you have the kind of the sobriety of your 50s. You still would not trade what you had here in the United States and the misadventures with what could have happened in Cuba? No, God forbid. You just really don't understand when you, you, I mean, when I was in federal prison, I never ran out of toilet paper. People run out of toilet paper in Cuba every day, you know? So imagine that. And as a matter of fact, you talk about the Marielitos and stuff, when they came over and now when the rafters come over and they're in jail, they're like in heaven because it's, 
You don't understand the federal prisons in this country treat people more humanely than the Cuban government treats them on the street. Wow. And there's more things in the federal prison in the United States than there is on the streets of Cuba. Of course, you can get it if you're an outlaw, if you're an illegal, if you pimp your daughter, if you do this, you do that, then you can get those things. But still, and I'm sorry, Robin, and whoever's listening, you brought me on to be real, and I'm just, I'm probably wrong, people, but that's how I feel about it. Nelson, though, what makes Cuba ultimately different from China? which has taken more people out of poverty in 20 years and brought them to a middle class than at any point in history. I mean, can't you argue that the Chinese government is as nefarious as Havana? I mean, it executes lots of political prisoners. It does really bad things. It suppresses... That's why it's evolution. What's happening is happening because it just has to happen. But you still, when you talk about there's 300 million Chinese that have a little money... Probably rich, 300 million Chinese. You're still talking about 1.400 million Chinese that get stepped on like cockroaches every day. So, but it has to happen, and however it happens, it, we we need to. We're we're fine. You know what everybody says that this world is off to hell in a handbasket. That's all a lie. We're we're fine. And who doesn't like Obama, you know what? Next year, he's not going to be here. And who likes him, had him. So, and the next guy, he comes in for eight years or four years. and he, But they're all patriots, man. Honestly, that's how I feel about it. And I'm probably wrong again. Do you wonder how Cuba could have progressed? And there were people, you know, the governor of uh, Minnesota back in the day, Jesse Ventura, he was arguing that it's too important a destination for grains. They need our rice. Uh, we need their sugar. They're, the sugar economy in the United States is really distorted by the, the sugar lobby, which is really represented by powerful Cuban interests, both in the Democratic and Republican parties, that there is much to gain for both sides in terms of a, a full normalization that many argue should have happened decades ago. It probably should. I don't know because I don't know. There's smarter people than me know that. But what I do know is that there's so many vested interests on all sides. And I'm, I'm thankful. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, they might send me back because I'm a convicted felon. The only reason they didn't deport me was because Cuba wouldn't take back the, the people. So I might end up all screwed up out of this. But I'm happy about it if it's, if it's, if it's a little blade of, of green for my country and for freedom. It's the, Barack Obama's a saint. And if he didn't, I think he tried. I might be wrong because he does have a couple of people on the left that are pretty way on the left. But but I think what he did was a great thing. And, I, and let's hope and let's just not even think so much about business. Think about people being free and people being able to travel and people being happy. Nelson, how different would your life have been if, let's go back to the, the early 70s, if your aunt had kept you in that elementary school where you won the trophy for your MLK speech uh, and you, you you weren't under the uh, auspices of these these people, these older smugglers and gangsters who knew that there was a lot of raw material out there, restless, poor, fatherless kids in Little Havana who could be turned into mercenaries and drug dealers. If, if she had kept you successfully on the straight and narrow, where do you think you'd be now? I'd be a lot farther along than I am, but thank God for the last 10 years, I've just been applying the American dream and I'm doing just fine, you know, and... And, and and I live a beautiful life. I try not to hurt anybody. I try nobody to hurt me. And I just wish, I don't envy anybody. I wish everybody the best, for real. Now, what do you think happens to Miami? Uh, this is increasingly being referred to as the Singapore of the West. It's already the, the gateway for Pan-American commerce. If you look at Brickell Avenue, the Park Avenue of Miami, you have all, all of these all of these banks, uh, you know, Argentina, Argentina banks, Brazil banks, uh, uh, Chilean banks. Back in the day, uh, when when you were a kingpin, they would do a ridiculous amount of money laundering. They were called the coin-operated banks. What does this do for the economy of Miami, which has always kind of been looked at as this satellite city uh, to Cuba? This is going to be great. It's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's up to the Castro government because. The Obama government gave them everything without concessions. At least that's what we're told. So if they really plan on, on being friends with the United States, they got to stop doing nasty things. And if that happens, and, and, and the young people in Cuba that, that want to be free, that want to speak English, that want to get on the Internet, that want to buy computers, that want to buy American goods, 
and they want to be part of, of what America has created, which is the American dream globally for everybody. So, you know, and nothing's bad here, guys. It's all going to be good. At the end of the day, it's all going to be good. Now, you're a religious guy, and you think about fate and circumstance a lot. Fidel Castro, uh, he has survived how many American presidents? If we were to count it, Kennedy, He's a Johnson, beast. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush 1, Clinton, Bush 2, and he might well survive Barack Obama into 2016. Uh, that that is uh, it's really amazing to think that he survived a U.S. backed invasion, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Subsequently, uh, how many how how badly did we mismanage this? Did we did we poorly plan this? Again, it's the vested interest. But you know, just like I was responsible for for my criminal career, Castro had the chance in 1959. Because if anybody tells you everything was rosy, they're lying too. So he had the chance to make Cuba more democratic, to make sure that injustices got righted, and he chose to stay in power for those 56 years. I think it's an indictment that he has outlasted all those presidents. Thank God for the United States that at least we've had that many different opinions. Cubans have only had one. And now his brother, his brother's toes the line. And listen, if they deport me back there, they'll probably execute me or pull my fingernails. But I've been in trouble all my life, so this is nothing Not new. before you send me a box of cigars, right? You, you at least do that for me, right? Hey, if I did go back there, I don't want to fight with nobody. I want to I <laughs> be able to live in peace and make money and, and deal with the United States. Now, Nelson, you know, finally, we have about eight, nine minutes left. And I want to get into a bit of a conversation uh, about something that's that's controversial. There's this argument that when Miami was blowing up <clears throat> in the in the mid '70s, when there was Cuban on Cuban violence, and then there was uh, you know uh, guns being shot in all different directions, uh, that Cubans by and large still had in the back of their minds, even as they were enjoying and and plundering some aspects of the economy in Miami, that. This was a, a temporary period because ultimately they were going to go back to Cuba anyway. Uh, so even the Marialitos who came here, uh, you know, it's like the, the old saying that no one in the history of mankind has ever washed a rental car, that they were effectively renters in Miami waiting to go back to a 1959-esque Havana without Fidel Castro. What's going to be the thinking? <laughs> yeah, what's going to be the thinking now? I mean, suppose you have easy access to Havana. Suppose let's you know, suppose the Castro brothers, the communist regime isn't there in 5 years. Do you suddenly see a mass exodus of all these people with money and political clout going back and reestablishing what they left off in the 60s? I, I don't think so. I think that, you know, most Cubans that are here in the United States that are successful are Americans and they would go back like the Sicilians would go back to Sicily. There's no Maxis exodus from, from New York to Sicily. You know, it's, it's the same thing or, or, or the Jewish people or whatever. I think that it, it, what, what I know for a fact, and I don't care who, who says what, I know that if different ideas keep going in the internet and, and communications, this just opened Pandora's box. And Castro, Raul, Obama, or nobody's going to be able to stop it. People are born to be free, and they're going to be free. And it's going to be, and we're going to have a good time doing it. <laughs> As you told me, a lot of these people who you knew who came in various waves of, um, of uh, exodus from Cuba have since acclimated to Miami. They've gone off into different businesses. You know, I believe Mitt Romney was at a fundraiser for his uh, his campaign at a what is it called, King of the Juice or something, Palacio de los Jugos. Yeah. And it was it came out that the guy was a former cocaine kingpin, and then the Republican Party didn't vet him. But it just illustrates the extent what about to which Martinez, he was in jail with me. Bush used to stay at his house. In right. So by the, sea. the extent to which the kind of the, the, the renegade, you know, the outsiders, the uh, criminals have now integrated into Miami life. A lot of them have since opted instead of blowing up Miami, you could take over the political process. You could have powerful people in D.C. Um, how how does this kind of play out now? We talk about that sublimation is really do you do you know of people, you know, from the Marielle Boatlift who have since normalized some people who were violent, who had nothing to lose back then, who now realize, you know, war, what's it good for? Of course. I mean, as all, most of us, as we get older, we get a little bit more conservative. Uh, but 
All we got to do, it, just, it happened already. It's like health care. It's like what it happened. The, there's going to be relations. So now we have to ensure here in the United States that human rights and civil rights, because it's not China with 1.8 billion people. It's a little teeny country 90 miles away from their big brother. And the big brother's got to take care of them in the sense is people have to stop being cynical on all sides and just make it about being brothers. Like I told you, there was a Cuban fighting with George Washington. That's a fact. Get all your proof checkers. I might be wrong, but I doubt it. Going back, you know, if you take stock of your life, you're very much a person who was impacted directly by the Cold War and uh, kind of the misadventures in foreign policy. It made, it made your aunt do something very kinetic, right? Your life was at this fork in the road, and you end up in Miami. Back then, they executed people. What do you regret? That I got into the drug business, that I became a criminal. The most stupid thing a human being can do is become a criminal. Because off the bat, you got the government against you. And there's no peace. There's no rest. There's no happiness. When you meet the girl of your dreams, the next day the feds knock on your door, take you away for 40 years, and she's doing Andy. And at the same time, I seen that the real money in this world, guys, belongs to hardworking guys that come up with innovative ideas. Look at Bill Gates. Pablo Escobar, Bill Gates, get Pablo Escobar, use him for Trump change. Use all of the Mexicans together for Trump change. And what does he do? He sells computers. And like I heard a celebrity say, you know, in his neighborhood, he got there and he's, he's a celebrity. The guy next door is a dentist. So I would just play fair, hope that my government guards the system to where it allows me to play fair, sometimes in the gray, whatever. You understand, pay my taxes and succeed and work hard. You got to work hard, folks. Nothing's for free. I can give it away, but somebody builds it. And that's the truth. And I, if I die right now and have I ever created any wealth, I give all my money to NPR. I think oh, they're boy. really don't, don't, don't fair and balanced. I swear to God, <laughs> they should have the title of fair and balanced. And oh, I listened God. to all of them because 23 years of walking in that yard and I didn't like listening to disco music. I listened to all the stations, seven days a week. On that note, Nelson Aguilar, we close out this interview on the, the miseducation of Nelson Aguilar and what it tells us about the, the bizarre history of the United States and Cuba. Thank you so much for joining us, Nelson. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, you can catch this show on NPR member station VPM News 88.9, Saturdays at 6 p.m., then again Sunday night at 8, always on the trusty NPR One app, which I cannot live without, and of course on iTunes at link fulldradio.com, or frankly, whatever newfangled podcatcher the kids are using these days. One last reminder, full disclosure and not a surf, at the National, Sunday, November 10th, our first concert show. Please join us. It's going to be history in the making, I hope. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Next week.